Hello everyone and welcome to the inaugural episode of Strategic Dialogues, a podcast hosted by the Institute for Global Dialogue that aims to take a deep dive into pertinent issues in international relations, including geopolitical dynamics and governance, foreign policy analysis, international diplomacy, all while centering an African perspective and focusing on African agency. My name is Faith Mabera, Senior Researcher at the IGD, and my co-host is Ms. Sanusha Naidu, who is a Senior Research Fellow also at the IGD. In kicking off our series of dialogues, we are delighted and truly honoured to have Mr. Judd Devermont as our first expert guest. Judd Devermont is the Director of the Africa Programme at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Prior to joining the CSIS, he served as a National Intelligence Officer for Africa from 2015 to 2018. In this position, he led the U.S. intelligence community's analytic efforts on sub-Saharan uh, African issues and served as the uh, Department of the National Intelligence Personal Representative at interagency policy meetings. From 2013 to 2015, he was the CIA's Senior Political Analyst on Sub-Saharan Africa. Mr. Devermont has also served as the National Security Council Director for Somalia, Nigeria, the Sahel, and the African Union from 2011 to 2013. In this role, he contributed to the U.S. strategy towards Sub-Saharan Africa signed by President Obama in 2012. In addition to to featuring as a regular commentator in U.S. and international media, Mr. Devermont hosts Into Africa, a bi-weekly podcast series on African politics and politics. Good morning, Jed. Thank you for joining us. And while I have not done enough justice to your achievement in that little introduction, we are honored to have you on today and to glean some of your excellent insights on U.S.-Africa policy in what is a very dynamic and evolving geostrategic environment. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm equally honored to be here and to chat with the both of you about uh, U.S. policy and what it means for Africa. Yes, certainly. And I think as a starting point, when one looks, takes a cursory glance at the broader American interests that have generally informed U.S.-Africa policy, we look at some issues, for instance, counter-terrorism, there's global health, there's democracy promotion, uh, strengthening the, the Afri- American economy and, and trade between the, the two entities and also supporting uh, European allies. But alongside these talk issues, there's also been a dominant view of American policy in Africa as being siloed, as lacking cohesion, and as easily caught up in a zero-sum approach, of course, with reference to the geopolitical competition. Would you agree with this notion that it has been difficult for Washington to reconcile the disparate strands into a coherent continental approach? Yeah, I think that's certainly true under this administration. Um, there's been remarkable consistency in U.S. policy towards Africa since the end of the Cold War, where you know the issues that you raise, security, democracy and governance, development and trade investment have been at the core of Republican and democratic administration policies towards Africa. But the Trump administration is a divergent one in the sense that they don't actually spend a lot of time on terrorism and security. In fact, they're talking about pulling out in West Africa. Um, They rarely, if at all, talk about democracy and governance. Um, 
they talk a lot about trade and investment with really an eye towards China. And if you live, work, engage with U.S. policymakers today, uh, China is almost always the first thing that they say. And I think that is, you know, really problematic. Uh, it, it overshadows all of uh, the U.S. interests, other U.S. interests on the continent. And I think it distorts what we do and what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, certainly. Um, it's it's interesting that you picked up on or you emphasize the, the notion of continuity, because certainly a lot of the criticism that I've come across um, takes a very narrow approach into looking at it purely from the prism of of um, geopolitical competition. And obviously, in this very um, evolving strategic landscape that, that we, we are currently engaged in. And um, I think the next thing that, that I, I, I also want to want to emphasize, and it's what you've drawn on, is the, the idea of continuity. We've seen that there's, there's, there's a continuation of programs that were initiated under both the, the Bush and Obama administration. So, for instance, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, PEPFAR, which is, which is one of those um, success stories in, in, um, in Africa. The Millennium Challenge Corporation has continued uh, power Africa and, and Feed the Future that were initiated under the Obama's uh, administration has continued. Um, the Young African Leadership Initiative also has continued. So um, very clear signs that contrary to to uh, popular notion or, or, or the, the clickbait around U.S. disengagement, there is aspects of, of continuity. And we've also seen recently President Trump taking on a, a very hands-on approach to mediation. We, we, and here I'm, I'm referring to the role that the U.S. has been playing in uh, observing the trilateral talks on the Nile uh, dispute between Egypt, um, Ethiopia, and Sudan. So there are indications that they, it's not all doom and gloom for U.S.-Africa policy. There have been constants and there have been new initiatives. And I think I want to go into the next a point here, um, but while there's this continuity aspect and con and constant, there's also been the contention, as, as one can argue very a, a valid contention, that the emphasis has mainly been in the security domain. Uh, and one can argue that this has been a, a, a definitive aspect of US policy with, with regard to Africa. And I think a, a key moment for this was the recent displeasure of Congress over, as you mentioned, uh, DOD announcement of a possible drawdown in the U.S. military presence in the Sahel. So how can Washington manage this delicate balancing act between counterterrorism, for instance, and the protection of American regional interests on one hand versus preventing overstretch and working with resources at hand? So this idea of a light footprint, how, where is the balance point? Um, if, if you want to call it that. All right, Faith, you gave me a lot to chew on. Uh, let me start with just about continuity. And um, you are right that there has been a lot of continuity, even in the Trump administration. I do want to make sure we're giving credit to who deserves the credit for that, and that is Congress, which has been um, avid defenders of these programs, um, even when the Trump administration has tried to cut them. Um, credit is due to the embassies, specific embassies, who really continue to push um, push these issues and remain loyal and, and faithful to these, you know, older ways and older value sets of previous administrations. Um, and then to the bureaucrats, so the non-politicals who have really been pushed. I don't think that there's a lot of interest at the political level for this uh, continuity. And then, you know, the second reaction I have to your points is the counterterrorism 
focus gets an extraordinary amount of attention in media. But in terms of dollar amounts, you know, nothing compares to what the U.S. does on development uh, AIDS, HIV. That is, for most countries, 90% of the money that the U.S. spends is on development. So it's it gets the headlines. It is clearly more important in, in countries such as Somalia, uh, the Sahelian countries, you know, northeast Nigeria. Um, but it is not the most important thing that we do. Um, and it is not, um, you know, by dollar amount what we do, you know, in, in, in uh, we do more than anything else. But the balancing act that you talked about is an important question because, one, there's the perception that you raise. Like how do we deal with the perception that it is all CT all the time? And then, two, how do we think about uh, what we do on the security uh, you know, on the security side of the the issues, um, that isn't overweighted or under. Uh, this isn't overweighted relative to the other issues. And you know, in the U.S. government, we often talked about. I don't work for the U.S. government anymore, obviously. But when I was in the government, you would talk about the three D's: diplomacy, development, and defense. And it is true that in some cases, uh, the defense side of the house uh, carries the biggest stick. It may not be in dollar amount, but it's in personnel, right? They are the ones with the, you know, they can send a number of soldiers. If there's an Ebola outbreak, they can help build uh, Ebola treatment units. And so I do think there has to be a rebalancing um, and where there isn't, that these are things are mutually reinforcing. Uh, And I, I right now think that that can become the case. If you look at the way the U.S. is responding to COVID-19, for example, the military has been a really good partner when it comes to delivering um, ventilators or you know excess defense equipment to different countries, working with the embassies. So perception is one part, making sure that what the military does is nested in these other, these other focus areas is the other key component. Yeah, certainly. And, and I know Sanusha also had um, very interesting questions to do with, as you mentioned, the 3D uh, approach in, in, in policy, which also informs a lot of AFRICOM's um, initiatives. Sanusha? Uh, thank you, Faith, and, and thank you, Judd, for, for really giving us uh, a cohesive and succinct overview of some of the key drivers and, and, and uh, factors that, that influence the way the U.S.-Africa policy is is set. And and just on that point, I wanted to pick up on AFRICOM. uh, And you mentioned, you know, while you were responding to to Faith about the 90% of how development or how the money is spent. And it kind of looks to me, and I may be wrong and you can correct me here, that it's very strategically uh, dispersed. And just in that context, I mean, with this with this idea that they may be withdrawing from from West Africa, and of course, there's the whole question of whether security is an overarching consideration. What would you say is the the relationship with regard to Africom? Is Africom still of st- of of strategic interest for the U.S. in Africa? Is it still based on that kind of identification of strategic? Uh, locations, strategic geostrategic geo uh, geo interests, and then the the third question. And I don't want to overfill the 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 bag of with questions, but just how does this compare with what's going on in northern Mozambique? Uh, that's a great question. Um, if you ask people in Washington about Africom and the concerns around the Africom potential withdrawal. 
Um, you know, most of the con- Congress will talk about counterterrorism. Um, and you, your, your listeners may have seen that the president and Secretary Esper is now talking about removing AFRICOM and our European command from Germany entirely and, and putting it somewhere else to be determined. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wrote a piece with a colleague of mine uh, for a website called Lawfare um, a couple of months ago that said, if you actually think about what AFRICOM is doing, CT may be uh, the least important or maybe the least effective, Mm -hmm. let me put it that way. Um, You know, what AFRICOM does really well is build partnerships. Um, Outside of your ambassador, the most senior official that you're probably going to meet as an African head of state is the AFRICOM commander. Uh, The U.S. president, across every U.S. president, if you added all of them up, they've only been to 16 African countries. There has been no presidential visit you know, for example, to Lusaka uh, or to, uh, you know, you know, Brazzaville. Um, but that's where AFRICOM mm-hmm. commanders go. I mean, they go everywhere and they do teach and or you know, with with uneven results, law and order. They are, as I said, a good partner when it comes to health. Uh, so I think that the counterterrorism part of what AFRICOM does is important, could be done a lot better, uh, should not be focused just mm-hmm. on removing uh, you know, terrorists from the battlefield, but thinking about how do we create enabling environments where governments can can rule and be, uh, you know, responsive to their citizens. Um, and we need to think about, um, you know, how do we how do we reimagine what the military does so that secure the counterterrorism is is one aspect of it, but is not. Uh, the most important facet of how we think about this. And I, you know, again, I I made the argument for thinking about partnerships and thinking about some of these other, you know, responding to natural disasters or human or or pandemic diseases. You know, when it comes to Northern Mozambique, you know, there is a growing uh, concern rightly uh, for what is happening uh, in that area as the, you know, the group, uh, that has links to ISIS, although I think that should be less emphasized than the than the fact that they have very local aims and they are becoming more and more sophisticated and 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 deadly. I mean, taking over uh, Mosia de Praia just recently, and that affects both the regional security, uh, but it also affects a huge investment for U.S. companies and French companies with the LNG find. And I think AFRICOM, mm-hmm. but the whole gambit of the U.S. government in partnership with the Mozambicans and with SATA countries could be doing more with them to address this problem, particularly to, to curb uh, the human rights abuses of the Mozambican government when they've sent their troops out, to pressure the government to allow media back in, and to think about some of the development issues that uh, and governance issues that have created uh, you know, a recruiting ground for, for this group to operate. Yes, and and I think and, and it's, I agree with you about there's this need for a policy shift from a oversized focus on just the counterterrorism aspect being being the one that grabs the the headlines and 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 you're right in saying that when you actually do a deep dive into the the amounts that are committed then you see a lot of a lot of the 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 actual disbursement goes towards the development initiatives. But cycling back to this notion of what you call the need for a policy shift, the need for a policy rethink, and and I want to join it alongside the, the question of the Prosper Africa Initiative, which is the, 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 the latest one um, under President Trump, 
it, it's the, when you when you look at the the the, the document poli- and the policy on paper, it's aimed at uh, bolstering the two-way um, U.S.-Africa trade, offering technical uh, assistance to both U.S. and 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 um, African uh, uh, businesses. But even in that, these very overt references and and this very clear intent in there to counterbalance growing Chinese influence in Africa. It is not really easy to view U.S. policy on Africa beyond the narrow lens of geopolitical competition, or is it? No, it's it's increasingly difficult to do it, um, given the, the climate right now in Washington. I, I don't think it is necessarily true in all dimensions of what the U.S. does, but China happens to be the lens that is dominant and the lens that will, or the framing that will get you time and attention of senior leaders and resources. For example, you know, the Prosper Africa and probably an even more transformative initiative, which is the U.S. uh, Development Finance Corporation that we created, uh, you know, early in this administration, only really got over the finish line because it was presented as a way to counter China. Uh, the DFC concept had been, you know, in and around Washington for a decade before it finally got the bipartisan backing and the legislation. And Prosper Africa, at its core, I mean, these are this is something that everyone knew needed to happen, which is the U.S. government wasn't working well uh, together to help U.S. businesses invest in Africa. So, you know, the China angle. Uh, the China framing, I think, is really problematic. It's not impossible to instrumentalize China within the U.S. system and to get maybe a broader outcome, but it's really difficult. And I would say, I continue to say to U.S. policymakers, if all of your inputs are about China, how do you expect your outputs to be about something more? I can point to a couple of examples in the history of U.S. policy where I've seen a very effective use of Cold War politics to get, I think, better outcomes for Africa. I would point to, for example, um, Chet Crocker, who was our assistant secretary in the 1980s and the way that he used the Cuba withdrawal to finally get Namibian independence. But it's rare that you see that kind of sophistication, long-term determination to do those issues. And so if it's China in, it's going to be China out. And that's really problematic. Thanks, uh, Jad. I think that really gets us to uh, one of the more important, if not uh, critical junctions around the US-Africa relationship, and that is the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. Uh, In particular, for me, I think the the geopolitical or the geostrategic competition between this kind of China-centric approach to everything uh, raises the question of where, what, what do we see in the context of the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act going forward? And let me just contextualize this a little bit because one of the challenges that we, I find in South Africa is the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act is becoming less and less about a 
uh, a bilateral economic engagement and more about trying to determine what domestic policy can be passed or can't be passed and, and, and how it's being used to, 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 to try and send signal messages to countries that you need to do this in your domestic environment or else you'll be, you'll be placed on a kind of waiting list or a kind of list where you either fall, fall off or you remain on the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. And just in that context, uh, is this also going to be the kind of di- the dynamic that is still going to be informed or is, st- is informed by this, t- this kind of China-centric approach to, to, to the way the U.S. unfolds its, its relationships in Africa? So I think AGOA is a little uh, is a little different. There are some serious issues around AGOA that we can talk about, um, but I think China uh, is not a driver for how we do uh, how we sort of think about the AGOA benefits. Um, but I'm gonna I'll come back to that as we get you the free trade agreements and we talk about uh, you know, the continental free trade agreements. So just AGOA specifically, I, I think. First of all, there are no trade agreements like this anymore in the world. What's a unilateral trade agree, unilateral privilege and preferences, right? So that the 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 African countries can export to the U.S., but it didn't require African governments to change their preferences for U.S. imports, right? So that unilateral trade preference system is really antiquated at this point, and for the most part, it hasn't. It was very effective in the early 90s, but in the last decade or so, I mean, U.S. trade and investment in Africa hasn't budged. It's been about under 2% the entire time. And so I think that it's perfectly fine, quite honestly, that if you are going to give access to Mm -hmm. an African country to your market, um, that you can impose whatever sorts of conditionalities that you want. And if the government of Cameroon, for example, which is the latest that we took away AGOA rights to, is committing human rights abuses, yes, it's separate from trade, but you know, it's it's a unilateral trade preference. So I think that that's just the sovereign right of a government to do so. The bigger question though, I think, is how do you graduate from AGOA? Um, I think there's broad consensus across the aisle that AGOA needs to improve, but it's there's lots of disagreements about how, because the kind of trade agreements that the U.S. is capable of having with South Africa are going to be different than the kind of trade agreements that we're going to be able to have with Gabon. And so that becomes really difficult um, because AGOA is a continental um, or at least a sub-regional approach to trade and investment. And it does argue that we need to think about you know, some countries may be able to graduate and some countries probably the AGOA unilateral trade preference is probably right for right now. The big conversation in Washington, and I presume uh, in South Africa and other places, is around uh, the free trade agreement that Mm -hmm. the U.S. has initiated with Kenya. And this is where China does become part of the conversation. Less on AGOA, more on this. And I think that is really wrong-headed. We should be trying to have greater trade and investment with with Kenya or any country because it's in our interest, not because we're trying to catch up with China, which by the way, if you look at any graph of US trade with the continent and Chinese trade with the continent, once China surpasses the US in 2009, they actually follow the same course. What I mean is that when China's trade is sort of trekking north, trekking up, ours is trekking up. And when they're going down, we're going down. Now they're just doing it at a higher scale, but there's really no evidence that there's some sort of zero sum and that China is 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 grabbing all the trade that the U.S. could have. Uh, it's really about sort of the commodity prices and the market, the openness of the market that has determined that. So 
the FTA shouldn't be about China. Um, the FTA really, people who are negotiating the FTA have to be really thoughtful of what that means for a GOA. Um, the way that this current administration talks about FTAs, the one, the first one with Kenya, and then there'll be lots more. I mean, that would take decades to do that with 49 countries. And of course, this administration is missing the most important thing happening on the continent, which is the Continental Free Trade Agreement. It's not impossible for the FTA in Kenya and the CFTA to be coterminous, uh, but I think there has to be a lot more conversation so that Kenya and the U.S. don't look like we are thumbing our nose at this important initiative, but thinking more how they can work in parallel and yeah, to and, and um, reinforce I think each I, I agree with you, um, Jed, when, when you're talking about the most important question being the 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 long term vision of graduating uh, from a Goa and and linked to 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 the idea before we even delve into the U.S. Kenya uh, FTA I think one one area that I would like to 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 pick your views on particularly from Washington's perspective so in in your piece you argue for um, embracing a continent wide uh, approach to Africa, but there are some who argue that U.S.-Africa policy should be regionalized, um, and and that essentially the U.S. multilateral relations should be with African continental and regional institutions, and that this should emphasize also um, goals like the the regional integration, and that this should take priority over U.S. bilateral relations, which with each and every country. So, for instance, uh, rea- a reawakening of the short-lived uh, SADC US uh, forum, and that this would actually give more coherence to to US African relations um, overall. So, so long term, maybe something like SADC Goa or ESC Goa or ECOWAS Goa, and that this kind of regionalization might form part of of an agenda evolving into now the larger continental free trade area and US um, trade agreement. So what, what's your idea of this regionalization argument and, and the, how does it fit into the tension between uh, a continental approach versus a country uh, by country approach? glad you asked this question, Faith, because I've been sort of chomping at the bit to talk a little about this. So as you know, I wrote a paper uh, earlier this month called A New U.S. Policy Framework for the African Century. Um, And if you read it, I actually don't talk about what we should be doing in Nigeria or what we should be doing in Kenya or what we should be doing in South Africa. It's a framework um, to how to think about our partnerships, both at the uh, continental level or regional level or country-specific level. Um, And really, it's about a very, you know, sometimes wonky, like what are the ways in which we think about African agency? How do we sort of use our senior leaders, U.S. senior leaders? What are the ways in which we should be talking to African publics? Um, and I think that it hopefully is a way to think about what would could be a country-specific policy as well, right? What are the principles that we want to underpin that? But, you know, you asked a great question about multilateral uh and regional organizations or the RECs, right? The regional economic communities. Um, And there are points in here where I highlight that. I mean, I think that ECOWAS, while they're struggling right now in Mali, has really um, been a standout for what it has done in peace and security. The EAC, the East African community, uh, is leading on integration. Uh, SADC's had some challenges, uh, but we could talk about SACU as being an important trade union. And I think this may be controversial, but the most exciting things happening on the continent are supranational and subnational. So cities 
and some of these RECs and the AU. Um, I think that's where some of the most interesting innovation is happening. And I'm not opposed to what you just suggested, Faith. In fact, if you look at the 2016 USTR, US Trade Representative Report called Beyond the GOA, they present a menu of different ways in which we could have a new trade relationship post-AGOA. One of them is thinking about a CFTA-US kind of partnership, but another one is thinking about the RECs. Uh, so I think that all of those things are on the table, and there may be a lot of advantages to do exactly what you're saying, in part because it's very consistent with the CFTA's vision, which the RECs are the building blocks for a broader continental trade um, approach. Thanks. Uh, I mean, that's really important, Judd, because I think it comes back again to your point about the supranational and the sub, sub, subnational dynamics and the convergence between the two around the, the CFTA. Um and the CFTA is really, you know, being seen as that as that blueprint take going forward in terms of maybe how uh, the regionalization of integration in Africa can be realized more more realistically and pragmatically. But I want to. I think your point about Kenya, you know, is some is so profound, particularly because Kenya is 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 been in the news for a bit, uh, and in and in the context of the last couple of months around its own relationship with China. And I think your 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 point about the discussion in Washington being around the Kenya U.S. FTA, and of course, you know, it's being in, it's being kind of couched within the kind of uh, lens of China, and. If you think about it from the Chinese perspective, the BRI, the Belt Road Initiative, is very much part of the Kenyan uh, structural condition. But there's been interesting tensions around uh, Kenya, China, uh, whether it was around the, 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 the quality of the mask, the question of the standard gorge railway comes up so many times, as you uh, uh, would have uh, discussed this with, uh, with the China Africa Project podcast. So just, you know, is, is Kenya this microcosm of how certain of the subnational issues are playing itself out and how does the, how does how does washington see this yeah i think kenya is one of these countries that is really interesting when you want to understand the china africa relationship uh, i would add south africa nigeria Zambia, and uh, perhaps Djibouti as well as being some of the countries where the most interesting and perhaps the the harbingers of where where things can go. What I think is so interesting about what's happening in Kenya and what's happening in Nigeria, and I think it could be a course correction to the way that the U.S. has approached China and Africa, is who are the people or the organizations and institutions that are asking questions about what the Chinese mm -hmm. are doing. It is the Kenyan media, right? It is the Kenyan health minister, mm -hmm. Kagwe, talking about the PPEs. In Nigeria, it is the National Assembly, the legislators. In South Africa, you know, it's a host of different, you know, from legislators to press to courts. Um, you're not seeing that much in Djibouti, in part because that is not a democracy. Um, and so the U.S. should focus on doing a good job in building its partnerships, and it should be investing in institutions on the continent and the fourth estate, because they are the ones who are going to be the one that are going to call out both what China is doing that is not working. They're going to call out what the U.S. is doing that is not working. And I think we're just in a much better place. There are pros and cons to what China does in Africa. There are pros and cons to what the U.S. does in Africa. And, um, you know, that's, that's mm -hmm. not... That's every country, yeah. right? And I think when 
African citizens and African legislators and African judges and African leaders are calling out what they want in these partnerships, we're in a much better place. So I think the U.S. needs to focus on its strengths, its partnerships, spend a little less time so overly focused on China, and and let uh, the Africans do the work. Because if you look at polling on how Africans think about uh, China, it's it's a very nuanced view, yeah. right? We support infrastructure. We like that. We don't like illegal fishing. We don't like uh, cheap Chinese goods that undercut our domestic industries. We're concerned about Chinese corruption. It's a nuanced perspective. And I think that should be our northern light as U.S. policymakers in terms of how we um, engage and how we talk about yeah, uh, foreign you, competitors. Jack, I think, I think you've, you've really hit the nail on the head there when, when you're emphasizing the whole notion of agency and that increasingly what Africa and, and the, the shifts that are underway in Africa as are pointing towards a move away from a very purely transactional lens, if you call it that, more towards uh, embracing a relational view of, of, of um, relations and any strategic um, relations. And it's something that you've also raised um, in your Into Africa podcast where you've said there's a need to reorient um, Africa's strategic partnerships with, with external actors into not just looking for... for um, a partner of choice, but also just a cho um, choice of partners so that there's range in that regard. And in your commentary, you call for a refocused US-Africa policy that's um, attuned to this shift, some of, of which you've mentioned. And you also highlight the need for real partnership as the essence of this um, continent-wide uh, approach to Africa. So um, how, how then does what you call the continent-wide approach um, that's anchored on, on, on a very real cognizance of the shifts of, of the realities on the ground. How feasible is it then to frame this pragmatic approach um, while avoiding undertones of um, paternalism or colonial um, hubris, if you like? So that, that balance of emphasizing agency, maybe a little bit on that, um, uh, Jed. Yeah, if you listen to uh, my interview on the China Africa podcast, I said that President Trump gave us one uh, one benefit, which is that uh, he's knocked us off our pedestal quite quite dramatically. <laughs> and whether U.S. diplomats uh, meant it or not, um, I think it was not intentional. They could come off as paternalistic. You should follow the way that we do things. We've got this all under control. Look at our democracy. Look at our economy. Mm -hmm. And President Trump has, uh, I think, exposed what is, you know, a work in progress. And my first answer to that question is, let's listen and let's engage in a dialogue and let's talk to our African partners and say, we don't have it all together. Our politics are tribalized and polarized. Our institutions face threats. Um, our media is under threat. Um, we do not have, uh, you know, we do not have human rights down. And we are working on that. And we want to hear from you and talk about these shared challenges that we have. Instead of coming from a place of we are the model country, we should be coming as that we are a fellow traveler trying to perfect our system. And I think that's a big way in which we change the dialogue. You know, one of the things that we do at CSIS in my program is 
Um, I spent my whole career, as you noted in the in the opening, as an analyst on Africa, right, for the government and now publicly. And so all I do is I say, well, this is what's happening with President Lungu in Zambia, and this is why we should be concerned about the coup in Mali. And it was really important for me to flip the uh, flip the script a little bit and turn the tables. And so what we do regularly, in fact, we have a piece coming out. Uh, next week is we ask Africans to tell us what they think about our democracy, about the U.S. political system. So what do you think about the DNC and RNC party conventions? Um, And I think that's part of this approach, this new approach to say, we want to hear from you about what we're doing as much as we want you to listen to our thoughts about what's going on in your country. We can both learn from each other. We can say some hard truths to each other. That's okay. But that's the foundation of a partnership, not uh, follow us, uh, you know, to uh, the land of milk and honey. We don't know where that is. We're working on it, too. <laughs> Thanks, Judd. I think you know, that that kind of comes to a very important point that um, I'll raise with you. And that is, uh, if you can take out your crystal ball and and, and say, this is what it's going to look like after the presidential election in, 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 in November. Uh, and how this is going to play out, uh, given the discussion we had, but also as a kind of colliery to that, you know, are there any other actors in Africa that captures the the imagination of the U.S. apart from China? Well, I'm not going to look into my crystal ball because I don't know. Um, I mean, I think anyone who who thought they could predict uh, elections in in the United States outside a very small minority after 2016 has been um, has been chastened, right? Uh, so I'm not going to try that. But uh, in terms of partners uh, or sort of other countries that the U.S. is very interested in, obviously Russia. Um, they've focused a lot on thinking about uh, Russian engagement in Central African Republic, but also uh, the Russian government's relationship with President Zuma and what they may be doing in the Sahel, for example. Um, What I try to tell people is that, you know, Russia is a minnow relative to China, the EU or the US when it comes to Africa. They have specific countries that they try to exploit. Those are ones that have a historical relationship with Russia, that have uh, minerals that that they're interested in, that are in conflict, or that the U.S. is sort of uh, has got itself into a sort of tiff around issues like third terms, and then Russia can come in and try to asymmetrically exploit it. But what is Russia's greatest weakness? is that when it only engages with incumbent governments and because we are seeing so much turnover in leadership, that means that when their person falls out of power, they're kind of out of luck. It's not that Russia has left South Africa in terms of engagement, but certainly it's a colder relationship uh, since uh, President Ramaphosa came in. Uh, The U.S. thinks a lot about um, the Gulf states, uh, particularly when it comes to the Horn of Africa. Um, the Gulf Rift was really has been problematic for Somalia and the Gulf countries, particularly UAE and Saudi Arabia, have to be part of this solution uh, mm-hmm. to moving towards a democratic Sudan. They're just key players there. So those are a couple of countries in addition to, you know, the, the Europeans, which we often think about. I, I've been really trying to push people to think more broadly about the countries that are interested in Africa. You know, Indonesia just had a summit on infrastructure in Africa. Uh, mm-hmm. Japan has been doing these summits, you know, since the 90s. Uh, we're seeing Eastern European countries develop Africa policies, Malta developing an Africa policy, India pledging to open, what, 18 new embassies in Africa in the coming mm-hmm. years. So I try to work, 
to open a conversation to widen the aperture and to think about all of these different players. And, you know, some of them may be uh, good partners for the U.S. and Africans, and some may have some challenges. But, you know, it's it's actually a good news story that many countries see a lot of opportunities uh, in Africa. S- suddenly, uh, just, Jeff, just thank you uh, so much. One follow-up. Yes, Anusha, um, you can... You can. Uh, sorry, yeah, just one follow-up, uh, Jad, sorry. Impre- what is your impression of Turkey in Africa, um, given Turkey's uh, yeah, role I, across the... No, thank you for that. And when I was going through my list, I, I actually, as I wrapped up, I realized I hadn't said Turkey. Okay, Turkey is really interesting. And it, when you look in the uh, the the 2000s, 2010s, uh, Turkey led with a, a very clear focus on commercial expansion, right? Turkish Airways flying into Mogadishu, for example. <laughs> um, and Turkish construction companies are you know really big on the continent. It has changed as Turkey has changed, um, as Erdogan has been more focused on sort of its rivalry with with Saudi um, and UAE. Mm-hmm. You know, there's you know contention in places like in Libya, for example. Um, but also, it has been singularly focused on uh, Gulenist schools. Uh, you know, uh, Erdogan's yes. rival, uh, the uh, the preacher who who lives in Pennsylvania, and so you see when Erdogan goes or his you know foreign minister goes to an African country, um, they may talk about commercial ties at some point, but the first thing they want to do mm-hmm. is you know remove the Gulenists. So it's evolving from what I think was a yeah. a, a very productive sort of relationship, you know, working on you know commercial development and partnerships and thinking about you know even in Somalia, how do we help build the Somali military in partnership with the rest of the world to, you know, the primary focus happens to be this domestic uh, rivalry between uh, President Erdogan and... and that's, that's really important. Thank you so much, Jared. I think in terms of it being our first episode of Strategic Dialogues, you have certainly raised the bar very high. You've given um, us and the, and the listeners certainly a lot of um, key points to Malon and to think on in, in opening up this discussion on, on strategic uh, dialogues. And I think what I, what I particularly picked up on is the need for, for you've emphasized that um, we should we should avoid just um, lumping U.S. Africa policy into the the headline grabbing uh, concept of just purely counterterrorism and and defense and strategy issues. But there's certainly the developmental approach. There's continuity, which is something that is important to emphasize in U.S. Africa policy, and the fact that there's a need to move away from the narrow lens. On, of, of view on geopolitical competition, the need for U.S.-Africa policy on both sides of, of the partnership to embrace pragmatism, to embrace new modes of um, in, engagement that appreciate both the, the what you call the, the supranational and the subnational elements. And I think these are very important points that need to reach not only, as you've said, U.S. Uh, policymakers, but also um us here on the continent, South African and certainly African policymakers. And on that regard, I, I will uh, put this in the show notes, but I also want to encourage listeners to have a look at the paper that we were uh, made reference, reference to by, by Jad. It's on the CSIS website. It's called a new U.S. policy framework for the African century. And we would certainly appreciate feedback and, and commentary uh, on some of the ideas and the points that we've raised in this uh, program. So thank you once more, Jed, for joining us and we look forward to carrying the conversation further.
Faith, uh, thanks, Anusha. This is really an honor to be your inaugural guest, and I'm excited to, to continue to listen to IGT's new podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Sanusha, and thank you very thank much. Thank you to the listeners. Thank you both.